This is the New England Journal of Medicine COVID-19 update for October 5th, 2022. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the Journal, and I'm talking with Eric Rubin, Editor-in-Chief, and Lindsay Baden, Deputy Editor. Today, we're joined by Ambassador John Nkengasong. John has a long history of leadership in global public health. He was born and raised in Cameroon, but he left after college to train as a virologist. He came to the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, where he served many roles, including as the chief of the International Laboratory Branch in the Division of Global HIV and TB. In 2016, he became the first director of the Africa CDC, leading it through a time when a number of infectious diseases posed threats to the continent. John then returned to the United States, this time to the State Department, where he became the Global AIDS Coordinator and Special Representative for Health Diplomacy. In this role, he oversees the President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief, or PEPFAR, a program that's been crucial to the delivery of treatment to millions of people around the world. John, before we get to your new position, let me start with a personal question. I lived in Cameroon for a few years, and I know that you're the first person of African origin to hold many of the positions that you have held. So how has that affected your perspective on your various roles? My approach and perspective to my respective roles have always been informed by my personal experience born in Cameroon and raised in Cameroon to the age of 24, where I was personally had affections with malaria and other tropical diseases. I think that really shaped the way that I have approached global health going forward. I've lived and seen the inequities that characterize access to good medical services. And I think that has always been a cornerstone in guiding the way that I approach my different respective functions. Before we get to COVID and HIV, I'd like to ask you about the various other illnesses that you had to contend with while you were at the Africa CDC. Let's start with one of the deadliest, Ebola. The large Ebola outbreaks in West Africa were part of the spur to form the Africa CDC. And then throughout your time at the organization, there continued to be Ebola outbreaks of various sizes, mostly in the Democratic Republic of Congo. How did forming the Africa CDC help with the response to those outbreaks? It's amazing you ask that because you're absolutely right that the outbreak, the very large Ebola outbreak that occurred in West Africa between 2014 and 16, informed and helped accelerate the political leadership of the continent of Africa to establish the Africa CDC. And very interestingly, barely five months when I came on board as the founding director of the Africa CDC, there was an Ebola outbreak in northern DRC. Interestingly, at that time, I haven't even had an office yet, and uh, everybody was asking what I was going to do with the Ebola outbreak in northern DRC. So it just tells you how much pressure that the continent wanted to have their own instrument of response, and probably had instrument that they could rely on and use to mitigate the harm that they saw in the Ebola outbreak in West Africa. And during my five and a half years stay at the Africa CDC, mostly I went to DRC nearly every year because Ebola outbreaks have become almost a yearly, at times twice a year, occurrences in DRC, which is quite remarkable because if you follow the trajectory of Ebola outbreak in the DRC since 1976, the first outbreak occurred that year, but the subsequently the next outbreak will take about 20 years before it occurs. And then subsequently 10 years, then five years, then suddenly nearly every year or now at least twice a year. It just tells you the pressure that the continent is under with respect to these emerging and re-emerging infectious diseases. There are multiple other diseases that I faced very early on in the establishment of a young institution, including Lazar fever in Nigeria, monkeypox in Nigeria, 
chikungunya in South Sudan, West Nile, Rift Valley outbreaks in Kenya, large cholera outbreaks and measles outbreaks there. So the young institution didn't really have time to establish. I always joke that the Africa CDC was born an adult because it was born where the continent was yearning to have their own public health instrument that they could rely on. And again, the COVID-19, I'm sure we'll have an opportunity to discuss that came at a time where the political leadership, especially the head of states of the continent, were yearning to have a public health instrument that they could rely on and speak to very freely. John, I'm curious about your perspective on the latest Ebola outbreak in Uganda, which is being caused by a different strain of Ebola. And unfortunately, because it's a different strain, we don't have the same tools that have been developed for some of the other Ebola outbreaks, particularly the vaccine. So what do you know about that? What can you tell us about it? First of all, the Ebola outbreak that we have in Uganda currently is not the first in Uganda. I think we've had multiple outbreaks in Uganda. And Uganda perhaps has some of the best Ebola outbreak physicians and epidemiologists that I can think of. They have a very strong viral research institute called the Uganda Virus Research Institute. They have very strong experts in the area. So I think I'm very optimistic that if the right things are done and if they are properly supported by partners, they will be able to handle this outbreak. Now, all outbreaks are different. No outbreak, even an Ebola outbreak is similar. So I think we have to continue to make sure that the basic public health measures that we know work for Ebola outbreak are implemented. For example, contact tracing must be scaled up to close to 100%. That is the only tool, effective tool that we have at this point. Infection control and prevention measures must be actually implemented. But very importantly, risk communication. I mean, what we saw and have seen over and over is that if you do not handle the risk communication appropriately, then this misinformation, you create room for misinformation, miscommunication, and then it becomes very difficult to contain uh, the outbreak in the community. Then rumors fly in as to whether this is really an infection or it is something related to witchcraft or something else that somebody has introduced in the community. So we really have to be ahead of ourselves and communicate appropriately with the community and mobilize the community leadership. In my personal experience in fighting Ebola in North Kivu, Unless and until you engage the community, not just engaging them, but let them lead their response, you always suffer because there will be a lot of misinformation. So I really hope that what we are seeing in Uganda now will be led by community leadership engagement, but very importantly, supporting them so that they can reach to at least 100% of contact tracing. John, you comment that the African CDC was born an adult which is a powerful image of the challenges that must be responded to. And you also noted many other infectious diseases that are surging in different parts of the continent. Lhasa, Rift Valley fever are some of the ones you mentioned. And now Ebola Sudan in Uganda. What should we as a global community be doing to help support the local infrastructure and response? Because I worry that we as a global community respond too late when it spread well beyond the initial outbreak and therefore that much more difficult to respond to. Should we be doing something different to support the response in Uganda from a global community standpoint? We should be doing three things, which I have outlined and argued before. 
that the world has changed significantly. The global health architecture that we have put in place for the past 75 years needs to be revisited. When those structures were put in place, the world's population was around 2 billion, around 1945 or 1946. Today, we are close to 8 billion people. And there are regions of the world like Africa, Asia, that are yearning to have health security closer to the people. Like the Gulf states have established their own CDC. The Asian countries have established their public health agency. The Caribbean have established their public health agency. The African continent have established their own public health agency. So I think what we need to do is three things. One is make sure that the World Health Organization is strengthened and reformed. Second, that the regional bodies such as the ones that I just indicated, are strengthened and also empowered to act regionally and act swiftly. And lastly, that the national structures, like the Ugandan Virus Research Institute or the Ugandan National Public Health Institute, is strengthened and capacitated so that it can actually respond quickly to disease outbreaks. All pandemics always start like an outbreak. Then, if not well controlled, they become a pandemic. So if we do that right, then it gives us... Uh, all of us, the collective us, the ability to address these diseases when they are local. So I think that is what I believe from my experience over the years, we should be really focusing on and be very intentional in that um, a model that says that we go to a country X and fight an outbreak is not sustainable. It has to be a model that says we do this in partnership, we put that country at the fore and we lead from behind, support them to succeed so that they build the capacity and capabilities to fight any subsequent emerging infectious disease. Another infection that's recently been front and center internationally is monkeypox. Of course, monkeypox has been circulating for a long time in Africa. One of the concerns that's been raised is that while we're bringing both vaccines and therapies to bear now, these weren't being used in Africa. So how does this look from the African perspective? So what I've said over and over is that we are all very, very interconnected. And let me just use COVID, which is still raging as a pandemic, as uh, to illustrate three things, that we as humanity are remarkably interconnected. We as humanity are remarkably vulnerable, regardless of where we are, whether we are in the global north or global south, and the inequities that we have seen exposed by the COVID-19 pandemic is all over, inter-regional and within even countries. So I think what we have seen with the monkeypox outbreak reflects that, that a disease threat anywhere in the world is automatically a disease threat everywhere in the world. We've seen this with the monkeypox outbreak. We've seen this now with the polio, where because we are struggling to eradicate polio, suddenly polio shows up in New York, it shows up in Israel, shows up in the UK. Again, I just wanted to make the point to emphasize that we are terribly interconnected, more interconnected than we thought we were. Now, for monkeypox, it has always been a localized regional infection. In the DRC, large outbreaks of monkeypox have occurred over the last couple of years in West Africa, similarly. And I think what this tells us is that we should take any infection, regardless of where it is occurring, seriously and squash it before it becomes something bigger. And that is what we are seeing with the monkeypox outbreak. Then it also speaks to the inequities that I described earlier, that until and unless we strengthen those health systems, strengthen the capabilities of countries to address that, not just in the response, but in the preparedness, which means we have to support local original manufacturing of diagnostics, vaccines, and therapeutics for the collective 
global health security we will continue to be in the reactive mode and not in the more engaging mode i think that is really part of what we should be thinking very deliberately as to how do we protect the world collectively from these emerging infections and not ignore any infection that occurs anywhere in the world. COVID showed up in Wuhan and within 22 days, it had affected 65 countries. That is how quickly these infections moved these days. So I think the example of monkeypox further illustrates the inequalities and inequities that we have seen over the years with respect to fighting infectious diseases. John, as you have noted, there are many different diseases spreading in different regions at different times. How do we decide which of these to target resources to develop countermeasures, vaccines, antivirals, and other types of treatments? How do we prioritize and properly invest? That is a fundamental question, but I think that, first of all, we should really look at what are called the horizontal health systems that are required to fight in these infections, regardless of what kind of infection it is. And some of these health systems include a workforce, the public health workforce that is required. A continent like Africa currently needs about 6,000 epidemiologists. That continent only has about 1,800 epidemiologists. I think that is a gap right there. A continent like Africa until now had very limited vaccine production capacities. Only the Pasteur Institute in Senegal was producing or is currently producing the yellow fever vaccine, which WHO approved. I think that scenario needs to be changed and as well as manufacturing of therapeutics. Those countermeasures are very important if we have to maintain the ability to go on the offensive and deploy them to fight any emerging infectious disease. Supply chain management also has to be addressed as well as information and technology systems that are required regardless of which infection we are dealing with. So I think we have to begin to think of those cross-cutting systems that can be leveraged in a platform manner to fight multiple diseases and also take advantage of the investments that have been made in vertical programs, such as the HIV programs, the malaria programs and TB programs, and say, look, what is it that we've invested over the years, the past 25 years, and how can we leverage that to support and fight other diseases? A good example of what that may look like is the current outbreak in Uganda. I can argue that unless we get Ebola out of the way, it will be very difficult to go back to fighting HIV AIDS. But we can, at the same time, leverage the platform that HIV has provided over the past close to two and a half decades to fight Ebola effectively in Uganda, just as it was done. And PEPFAR platforms were used very effectively in Africa in supporting the rollout of testing for COVID, uh, vaccination and other infection prevention control measures. You bring up two you know, very strong arguments. One, the ethical argument about equitable treatment of people, and the other, the sort of selfish argument for the world, which is those diseases are coming your way if you don't do something about them. Given both of those, what's the relative role of international organizations like the US CDC or the WHO in outbreaks that are occurring right now in Africa? It's partnership. What I call transformational partnerships is very important. Uh, partnerships that recognize that we have been very successful. Uh, we in the developed world have been very successful in building capacity in the developing countries. And that capacity must be used effectively the workforce and the intellectual capacity or academic capacity of what has happened over the years, say in Africa, thanks to programs 
from supported from the United States, the Europeans, and elsewhere is remarkable. But this is the time to let them lead, and we support from behind as much as possible. These countries will not do it alone. Uh, we are in this together. That is global health security. It is truly global. It's for all of us together trying to protect humanity. But we have to be very deliberate to say that the only way to respond to these recurring emerging infectious diseases, also emerging other emerging threats like non-communicable diseases in developing countries, is really to make sure that they are at the forefront of this and we support them from behind, be the right partnerships that will put them at the leadership position to drive the response. COVID on the African continent has been quite an uneven experience. Some countries have had high rates of disease, while others seem to have suffered less. So what do you think accounts for this? COVID in Africa remains a puzzle to many. And I published a perspective in science uh, last year, I remember January of last year, where I tried to offer explanations as to why we saw the picture of the affections and infections in Africa. A couple of the points that I raised there was the strong political leadership that the continent exercised under the very capable and able leadership of President Cyril Ramaphosa, the president of South Africa, who was then the chair of the African Union. And he convened about 14 meetings at the head of state level and will put Africa CDC at the center to explain the pandemic on the continent agree on collective measures to work across the continent and then lend support for that. I think that is remarkable. I learned firsthand how good global health practice is good politics. And I think that was extremely effective there. How did this play out? Uh, If you recall, the first cases of COVID-19 showed up on the continent of Africa on the 15th of February, 2020. And at that time, just one week later, the continent summon all ministers of health at the headquarters of the African Union in Addis Ababa, and they agreed on a common joint strategy. And that strategy was implemented through the lenses of cooperation, collaboration, coordination, and communication, what they call the four Cs. And that was effectively led by President Cyril Ramaphosa, the chair of the African Union at that time. That helped because it helped to blunt the spread of the virus when it was effectively introduced on the continent around March time period and then expanded around April. I think that was extremely, that political leadership and drive was very valuable. The second thing that really helped the continent was the youthfulness of the continent. At least 70% of the population in Africa is less than 30 years old. I think we saw many young people were infected with COVID, but they, they were not sick, they were asymptomatic. I remember vividly that at some point, about 10 staff at the Africa CDC were infected, the young people, and they would just go home for seven days, take, recover, come back, test negative, and they were on. I, myself, I was infected, but I don't represent the young people. And unfortunately, I had the vaccines at that time. So I think it was all based on the age group. The median age in Africa is 19.5 years. I think that is just, it really worked out very well for the continent, whereas the median age in Europe, for example, it's like 45 years in some countries that were heavily affected. So I think that also played a significant role. And I would just say that there's also the unknowns. I still believe that uh, research should be focused on identifying if there were other genetic factors or environmental factors that played a role in blunting the effect of COVID in Africa. Remember that very early predictions indicated that about 6 million people would die in Africa within six months, and it didn't happen. 
Yes, people died. A large number of people died. When I left the continent just four months ago, there were about 250,000 deaths officially reported. It might be an underestimate, but clearly you didn't see people dying on the streets like flies. And I don't have any evidence to doubt that the continent didn't see six million people dying on the streets of capital cities. So I think there are several reasons to believe that there could be other factors that science can unveil. And I think that provides and offers an avenue for that research. Just a comment on that, John, because I think you make a really good point. Leadership was very important in the epidemic. And as you pointed out, Africa is lucky in a way to have such a young population, but it also had very strong leadership on this issue and leadership across the world was inconsistent. But it doesn't take a wealthy country to provide good leadership. And I think that the situation in Africa really illustrated that. It took a threat such as COVID-19 to harness that strong political leadership in Africa because the continent saw the danger and saw the threat. It was imminent. And I warned that it was a looming threat. I published a paper in the Lancet calling it a looming threat on the continent, and it came. But in my years, close to three decades of experience in public health, I've never seen a continent like Africa mobilized the way they did. As I said, before I left the leadership of Africa CDC, I had had the chance to brief the head of states uh, 20 times, 20 times. And I think that was remarkable to see how the highest level of political leadership of the continent were actually valued and understand public health the way the impact that has because it was a national security threat to them. It was a developmental threat to them. It was an economic threat to them. So I think we saw airlines and airlines and airlines in Africa grounded. When I flew into Nairobi to South Africa or Addis Ababa, you just saw airlines sitting on the tarmac there. It was scary. It was devastating. And I think that actually urge the head of states and the leaders, political leadership to exercise that cohesion in their coordinated approach. You don't need to be rich to exercise leadership. The continent showed clearly that leadership matters in when you have a common threat, a pandemic like what we saw in COVID-19. John, do you think that was a unique event associated with COVID? Or do you think that this is a basis for future collaboration? Because Africa, as you know so well, is a very large continent with many different countries, cultures, and priorities across different sectors of society. Is this a model of responding to infectious disease threats that can be carried forward and built upon? Or was it a consequence of COVID and is a unique moment? I think it's both. It should be seen as a unique moment, but a unique moment that laid a strong foundation that could be carried forward and should be carried forward. Very practically, that strong political leadership translated into initiatives and platforms that were established because of that. If you recall, the continent was the first to secure 400 million doses of vaccines, the Johnson & Johnson vaccines, before COVAX ever scaled up their own vaccine delivery. And... Those vaccines, the 400 million doses of vaccines were paid by the national treasuries. It was not a donation. The down payment of that was done by the Afri-Exim Bank, which is an African-run bank. And I think it it speaks to the fact that you can truly build a public-private partnership to address public health issues. When there were issues related to commodities, uh, health security commodities like diagnostics, 
personal protective equipment, the continent, through that political leadership, established what they call the African supply chain management system. And if you actually Google amsp.africa, it will show up like amazon.com and countries could go in there and pull whatever commodities they need and put into their basket and pay because each country had their code. So just to restrict myself to a few of those. Now, if we project into the future and say, how can we leverage the platform that enabled them to acquire vaccines and then extrapolate that to other needs for other vaccines, that will be a truly building capacity in the region. If you extrapolate the occurrence of that Amazon-like platform for commodities and it becomes a platform that you can use for securing commodities for malaria, tuberculosis and other infections, that becomes a global health platform that could be used regionally. So I think there are several initiatives, several platforms that were initiated that could actually be leveraged on and I'm really hoping that it could go for that. Lastly is that the recognition from the head of states that they needed to move the Africa CDC to an autonomous health agency. And that was done only because they saw what it had, the performance of the young agency during a pandemic. And they have now agreed to elevate it to an autonomous health specialized agency of the African Union. So a lot of good things happen. The challenge that we have collectively is to supporting the continent to harness those platforms and make it more broad-based so that it can be used in supporting other disease outbreaks like Ebola. Vaccines became available in much of Africa far later than in the rest of the world. You've been an advocate for developing the infrastructure to produce vaccines and therapies in Africa to increase accessibility and equity. So how has progress been there? I'm very pleased at the same time humbled to see the remarkable progress that has happened on the continent of Africa since we launched the platform at that time in my former role as the director of the Africa CDC, a platform called the Partnership for African Vaccine Manufacturing. About 10 countries have now lined up and are in the process of producing vaccines, especially the COVID vaccines. I mean, those countries include Rwanda, Algeria, Egypt, Nigeria, Kenya, South Africa, Senegal, and many others. We didn't see that before the pandemic. So I think I'm very, very delighted to see that remarkable progress. I must only add that it needs to be done in a coordinated way so that whereas there's a demand for that service, there should be a supply and demand dynamics so that there's a market for the vaccines if they are produced and there should be uptake of the vaccines. I think this is where a global health uh, cooperation and solidarity also matters, where we step back and say, how do we shape a market so that a vaccine that is made in Nigeria or Kenya actually finds a market for that? Vaccines are not drugs that we put on the shelves or the counters of pharmacies and people go buy them. They have to be seen from the lens of security, not just the national security for those countries that are producing them, original security, but global health security, because as we've all argued, what affects one affects everybody. We saw what Omicron did. Omicron emerged or was detected in South Africa and Botswana, and within weeks, it was all over the world. So I think that speaks to the power of if we have vaccines and everybody is vaccinated at a high rate and coverage, then you blunt the emergence of such a variant such as Omicron. I think that is a very practical example of what creating a decentralized vaccine diagnostics and therapeutic manufacturing could do. Let me just reflect on diagnostics. For the past 40 years, we collectively, I mean, the collective we have been doing HIV testing, 
on the continent of Africa. About 60 to 100 million tests are conducted, but there's no single country in Africa that produces a rapid test for HIV. And that is a security issue for all of us, because if we have a couple of countries producing an HIV test, you could repurpose that platform so that you can actually leverage, use it in the time of a disease X, a new disease emerges, you use that platform. I'll share my personal experience on that. When COVID hit, I would send someone to go from Addis Ababa, the headquarters of the Africa CDC to Berlin, uh, because I identified a small manufacturing group in Berlin, and he, he would go to Berlin, buy 40,000 tests, carry in a suitcase, bring it that to Addis Ababa, and then we'll distribute that in smaller amounts and ship them to countries. And countries were extremely appreciative of that. But we cannot guarantee global health security by such approaches. It would be too late if we had a fast-moving infection. Imagine if we had a virus like the SARS-CoV-1 that emerged about 20 years ago with a very high case fatality rate, and then a SARS-CoV-2 that transmits very rapidly. If you blend those two characteristics together, it might be too late if we are using the kind of a trickle-down diagnostic introduction approach in developing world. So the point here is to invest in platforms that we use daily so that we can repurpose them very quickly when we are threatened by an unknown disease. And it's not difficult to produce these diagnostics. We saw that within four weeks, we knew the sequence of the COVID virus. Countries that had the capabilities were able to very quickly produce diagnostics and use that in advancing the testing. The basis to fight any infectious disease is good diagnostics. I think, again, that is an area that we should invest in a very intentional manner to protect in the spirit of guaranteeing global health security. That being said, Africa is not one country. It's a collection of a lot of different countries. If you make diagnostics in South Africa, are those more likely to get to Sudan than the ones that were made in Berlin? Absolutely, yes. Because, of the again, remember that until now, the, the continent didn't have a centrally organized public health agency. They now have their own public health agency, the Africa CDC. The Africa CDC is not a non-governmental organization, it's an intergovernmental organization. And the same way that we distributed the COVID diagnostics and vaccines, we meaning Africa CDC at that time, it will be the same mechanism that is used. It's a political structure that will facilitate that kind of movement of diagnostics if they are produced in Senegal or what the African Union and the Africa CDC will need to do is to make sure that they acquire those and then distribute it across the continent. That's what Africa CDC did during the pandemic. It was really the most effective intervention was distributing health security commodities, diagnostics, personal protective equipment, and subsequently vaccines. John, I mean, you speak to the importance of strengthening public health and infrastructure, and the African CDC has emerged as a very important agency for the region. It's something in the U.S. we also struggle with, is in times of non-crisis, the public health infrastructure is not supported to the level it needs to be here in the U.S., of course, in an agency that has recently been stood up the importance of standing it up properly and resourcing it properly. And I think we as a community need to remember the importance of public health and the support it needs to be effective, particularly during the inter-pandemic, not the intra-pandemic time. The U.S. has always been a leader in public health and global health. And the whole establishment of the United States CDC has inspired the world. 
to create their own CDCs. I think we should be very proud of what we have produced at the US CDC and support it, empower it, strengthen it so that it continues to be that leader. Because of the good work and remarkable work that the US CDC has done over the years, the European established the European CDC, the Chinese established the China CDC, the Africans have established the Africa CDC, Korea has established their CDC, uh, many other countries in the world have established their CDC. The Gulf states are now in the process of establishing their CDC. So I think we should be very proud of that achievement and continue to make sure that we keep our eyes on the board that public health is fundamental. Public health is public security. It is national security because the disease threats now clearly a national security threat for all of us. And the only way to stay ahead of the curve is to make sure that we have very strong public health systems in place. Finally, I'd like to turn to your new role at PEPFAR. PEPFAR has been one of the most successful U.S. public health programs ever, and it's been credited with saving millions of lives. So where does the program stand now, and where do you hope to take it? I agree fully with you that PEPFAR is one of the most impactful and credible public health programs, and especially designed in fighting a single disease. And we should look back on the journey of PEPFAR, which in January will turn 20. And really, first of all, celebrate the remarkable achievement of what PEPFAR has done in transforming the narrative of HIV-AIDS and the trajectory of HIV-AIDS. PEPFAR, as I've described previously, is one of the great equalizers of inequities that you see in global health. If you remember in the mid-90s when ARVs were introduced in developed countries, mortality dropped drastically, but it continued to increase in developing countries, especially in Africa. And it will only begin to bend the curve of mortality around the mid-2000 when PEPFAR was created and launched in 2003 together with the Global Fund. So I think that is a good example, a textbook example of what narrowing the gaps in inequity looks like. So we've seen that life expectancy in countries, especially in sub-Saharan Africa, where the blunt of the infections were, has really bounced back. Countries have gained more than 10 years in life expectancy since then. We've seen that countries like Botswana, Iswatini have now exceeded important thresholds of achieving more than 95% of people that are infected knowing their status, 95% of those who know their status put on treatment, and 95% of those achieving virus suppression. Remarkable progress. But as we go forward, we should also know that as in any infectious disease, once you get to the last mile, it gets even more challenging. We are at the point where we are projecting and looking at 2030 and said, well, just maybe if we do not leave our eyes off the ball, we could actually bring this pandemic to an end, meaning that we bring it to a level that it is not a public health threat by the year 2030. But that last mile will require that we continue with the same intensity of effort that we have applied over the last 20 years. So going forward, the direction that I hope I will offer in my current leadership role is that we continue to lead the program by using good quality data and look at what priority populations are affected, like children. Children are offering us with the greatest challenge because in as much as we are making very good progress in adult populations, we are lagging behind seriously in children. Adolescent girls and young women bear the burden in most countries now in Africa. And the key population, the LGBTQI population and other populations that we should really be paying attention to because the majority of the infections are actually embedded in the three categories I just listed. 
in addition to that, the sustainability of these programs are very important. And sustainability should not be looked at only in the lens of financial sustainability, but should also be looked at in the lens of programmatic sustainability and political sustainability. So that we continue to elevate the HIV agenda and put it in front of the political leadership. I explained earlier how, in my experience, because of the strong political leadership of the continent of Africa, they were able to manage the COVID very effectively. That same high-level political sustainability should be maintained. Her systems must be strengthened in a very intentional way, continue to be strengthened, I must say, because uh, PEPFAR is already doing that and Global Fund, but if we cannot leave our eyes off the ball, we continue to do that. It will help us to deliver the services in the most inequitable manner. And then partnerships, very transformational partnerships, new partnerships that will allow us to focus resources more appropriately in addressing those gaps that I just highlighted. And of course, make sure that we continue to lead with science. I think that is the new direction that I hope that we can follow that will hopefully lead us to 2030, which is where we've projected our eyes and hope that by that period, we should be able to bring HIV AIDS under control. John, I love your last mile analogy. And of course, it brings to mind the issues with polio eradication, where the hardest part was really at the end, trying to track down the last few cases. But the difference with polio, of course, is that the vaccine, once you gave it to a person, you didn't have to worry about that person anymore. There is a sustainability issue though with HIV because we don't have a cure right now. So that means we not only have to identify new people to bring them into care, but we have to maintain care for perhaps decades for a very large population. How do you see that part of the challenge? That's a very good question. I think this is where we should be looking at the strategy we're offering. We should be looking at a patient-centered approach in managing those who are on ART because we've done a remarkable job in putting millions of people on ART. PEPFAR has saved more than 20 million lives over the last 19 years. That is an average of almost 1 million lives saved a year. Because of PEPFAR investment, about 5.5 million children have been born free of HIV AIDS. I think that is remarkable. Now, the challenge is what you raise because people are now living longer. People that we started treating 20 years ago are living longer. They are now challenged with issues of hypertension and non-communicable diseases. We also know that there are issues related to mental health that we must address that are leading to issues related to discrimination, to stigmatization, and to gender violence. We should be addressing all of that in a holistic way, in a patient-centered manner, which means we have to be innovative in what we do, innovative in the drugs that we bring to bear in the theater of response. And with an understanding that treatment alone will not solve the problem, that we have to look at treatment, but look at prevention as well. Prevention using long-acting antiretroviral therapy, uh, prevention using vaginal rings, innovations that women can control effectively, prevention using just oral prep. So in a way that we balance up our efforts between treatment per se, as well as prevention. I think if we up our efforts in both prevention and treatment, then we have a fair chance that we will go a long way. But we really have to also continue to innovate the new ways of treatment and new ways of even trying to develop cure so that people are definitely treated of HIV in the future. If It may sound overtly optimistic, but we should always remember where we come from 20 years ago or more. 
in the mid-1990s, treatment was a cocktail. You remember that patients used to take a handful of drugs. Today, it's very common to have one pill. I think it gives me hope that in future, if we apply our minds widely and bring innovation and science to bear, we could actually be coming down with a long-acting treatment regimen that people can take for long and possibly cure. And John, you raised the concept of horizontal and vertical interactions with health systems. And PEPFAR, by its nature, is a vertical intervention addressing AIDS, HIV. But in listening to the way you think about this, I wonder if you think of it more as a horizontal, where PEPFAR is a mechanism to strengthen health systems that can allow HIV to be addressed head on, but also enables other health benefits, be it vaccination programs or perhaps some of the platforms needed to identify new infectious disease threats and facilitate more rapid response. Is it more than a vertical intervention in your view? In my view, it has always been more than a vertical program. If you remember that or not, that in the reauthorization language in 2008, PEPFAR explicitly mentioned strengthening health system. And PEPFAR has been doing that all along. PEPFAR invests about $1 billion a year in strengthening health systems. That include the workforce, laboratory networks, and supply chain management, information systems, surveillance, and others. And those assets can truly be used and are being used in, in fighting other disease outbreaks. For example, COVID. PEPFAR platforms were perfectly leveraged in several countries in Africa in expanding testing. The same platforms that PEPFAR has supported for testing were used in Nigeria, in Zambia, in Malawi, across the continent of Africa in fighting COVID. Same platforms were used and leveraged effectively in the scaling of vaccination when it was stored in many countries. So I think the disease itself is vertical, but a platform that are required for service delivery are horizontal in nature. If you train a doctor or a nurse, that is a trained doctor or a nurse. I mean, whether they work on HIV or not, they are very capable to respond to other diseases. I think we have to be more deliberate in saying that the time has come where other investments, like investments from the World Bank that support horizontal systems, investments from the African Development Bank and others, should all be tied together so that we work collectively when we are in the same countries to make sure that they synergize. So if PEPFAR is operating in Kenya and the World Bank and African Development Bank are in there, the time has come to sit down with the ministries of health and really have a coordinated approach so that those horizontal investments support vertical programming there. There's absolutely no point training people that will not be doing something. So the vertical programs offer that training ground for the horizontal systems to actually be used and leverage on so that you can actually continue to practice. I see this as an, a training an army. You have to train an army and let them practice. I think working on those endemic diseases, i.e. malaria, tuberculosis, and HIV, leveraging horizontal systems that are supported by the World Bank, the African Development Bank, and others, is just a perfect opportunity that we should harness. Thank you very much, John, for joining us today. And thank you, as always, Eric and Lindsay.